It's good to see you here. This past week, my wife and uh, oldest son and youngest son went to uh, a conference called Christian Alliance for Orphans, and they brought me back this T-shirt, and I thought I'd wear it today. It says, Seek Justice, and I think it's appropriate uh, for Mother's Day as there is a variety of children uh, around the world who, through uh, no fault of their own, have um, no mother, no father, and they are orphans. And, and not only that, I think there's a variety of mothers around the world who have been uh, oppressed, uh, maybe through war or violence, um, economically. And I just want to make sure that we are a church that's continuing to engage the world with, with justice and, and mercy, not just abroad globally, but those who are around us. And unless you think that justice and mercy are optional for the Christian, you will see that's not the case. And I think it's appropriate that we kind of start off with this justice idea as we start the book of Ezra, because the book of Ezra is talking about a group of people that get to come back after payment for their sin. But the reason why they were deported was a lot of injustice and a lack of mercy and idolatry. So justice and mercy are not optional activities for the believer. But before we get into God's word this morning, I think it's appropriate that we pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are a God of justice. You are a God of mercy. And in your mercy and justice, you have communicated to us through your Son, who bore your wrath in our place so that we could have mercy and come into relationship with you. And you have communicated your love to us through your Son, and you continually speak to us through your Word. And may we be those who diligently seek and search and study your Scriptures to know you, God of love and justice and mercy, and to enjoy you more. And may your pursuit of us and our pursuit of you come alive now as we get into your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. In honor of Mother's Day, I thought I would begin today by talking about mommy guilt. Uh, Mommy guilt is something real that moms, even dads, feel uh, that's sometimes heaped on us unjustly by our children. Sometimes it's, it's justly, we've done wrong, we just need to feel guilty, but a lot of times this guilt that we feel as parents is uh, not just. Uh, this past uh, Monday, uh, I have permission to tell this story by the way, this past Monday I came downstairs and my 12-year-old daughter proclaimed to me the first thing, not good morning, uh, but she said, mom lost my soccer glove. So somehow, my wife, in doing the laundry, from the main floor to the basement, lost her soccer glove. And and I'm I'm not the most gracious man, and I tend to be sarcastic. And so, I fought logic with logic. And I said, um, you know, she didn't lose it. She actually threw it away. Because she doesn't want you playing soccer anymore. We've decided we don't want Jordan playing anymore. We're going to throw the glove away. But even though it was lost or thrown away, I I still felt this guilt on me 
And my wife maybe did a little bit, and we're searching around. I'm searching around. Where is this glove? You know, like there's still this false guilt of responsibility. Where is this glove? She can't play soccer unless you find this glove. And, and we couldn't find it. And a few days later, you're never going to guess where it was. In the trash can. I'm not joking. I have no idea how it got there. But we went through a few days of feeling kind of false guilt. Um, and that happens on a normal basis where you have false guilt. It's okay. I don't need to feel guilty. It's not my responsibility. But there are times as parents where we do feel guilty. It, it is our responsibility. We have blown it. And I've gone through seasons as a father of slacking off and not leading my children as I should, of being easily upset and of default mode of spending way too much fi- uh, time on my phone as I ignore them. And after a while, I come to my senses. And by God's grace, I can find forgiveness and uh, start again. And it's kind of similar to our spiritual lives, where you can be walking with the Lord, and things can be going okay, you're obeying Him, you're desiring to love Him and others, you can be in the Word, you can be in fellowship with others, but then all of a sudden, you just kind of drop off the map of the Lord, and you start to drift away. Maybe you go through a season of rebellion, or distraction, or you're just kind of blah in your relationship with the Lord. But by God's grace, like the prodigal, you can come to your senses and you can return to the Father. And I just want to encourage you, you can start again. Because God, our God, is a God of grace and mercy through Jesus. And he allows us to keep coming back to him and asking for forgiveness so that we can start again. And it's a consistent pattern that we see in the Bible of God's grace and patient endurance with his people, and as they stray, he gives them opportunity after opportunity to start again. And it's an encouraging word, and it's a word that we're going to see uh, over the summer, and as we start today, as we study uh, this pattern of grace in the book of Ezra. And the good news is, is that God doesn't scrap his wayward people. He doesn't scrap them, but he restores them, and he renews them so that they can worship him. He enables his people to start over and begin anew. And it's an amazing display of grace. And if you're here this morning and you need a a fresh start, you need to start over, grace is being thrown upon you, thrown out in the cross of Jesus where you can start over. So let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ezra. Let's turn to the book of Ezra. And it's okay if you can't find it. Uh, Maybe some of you have never read the book of Ezra before. You look in your table of contents or look in the uh, person next to you. Turn to the book of Ezra. Now, it's really really difficult to come to a book like this and understand where where are we talking about in biblical history. And so I'm going to kind of put something up over the next several weeks to kind of place us in biblical history so we can kind of know where we're at. So let me go ahead and put this up for you so you can get your bearings. So we have God created the world. I'm just doing a little. Then Noah, and there's Abraham. Then Israel goes to Egypt. Then we have the exodus out of Egypt. Then we have King David. Then we have the kingdom splitting. We have the northern kingdom and Judah. And the northern, northern kingdom gets taken away by Assyria, and they're destroyed or assimilated. And then we have Judah exiled to Babylon due to their sin. Then we have the exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild. 400 years of biblical silence. And then Jesus Christ. 
And right now the book of Ezra is this exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild. I'm just kind of giving you historical timeline of where we're at. Now, we're going to have to do a lot of, uh, of heavy groundwork today because to understand Ezra, we have to know what's, what's going on. I, I know you may glaze over a little bit. That's not my intention. But I have to explain where we're at and what we're doing about, with the book of Ezra. And so I'm just going to lay it out to you. In the first six chapters of Ezra, we're talking about the original exiles, the first wave, who returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And this effort was led by Zerubbabel. Once we hit chapter 7, about 80 years have passed since the exiles return. Then Ezra comes on the scene to establish the people in the ways of the Lord and his law. So Ezra would be a part of the, the second wave of returning exiles to Jerusalem. He's about 13 years before Nehemiah, but their mission has some overlap. So if you, you see that Nehemiah is in the Bible as well. Well, Nehemiah, his focus was on building the walls, and Ezra's focus was on building the people. Kind of keep them, keep them in your mind like that. Nehemiah building the walls, Ezra building the people. And that's our focus in the book of Ezra. He's focused on the renewal to see God's people spiritually renewed in their commitment to the Lord. It's, it's a story of starting over. And to kind of ground us today, we're going to start with this chapter 1, with this language of starting over. And I'm going to go and put a verse up for you. And, and verse 11 says, The exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just, just keep that grid in your mind. From Babylon to Jerusalem. That's what's going on a lot in, ch- in chapter 1. And that statement alone, from Babylon to Jerusalem, is, is loaded with so much hope and a new start. The years of discipline and dryness are coming to an end, and there, there's real hope back in the land. And, and many of us, even as believers, will find ourselves going from Babylon back to Jerusalem. We'll find ourselves leaving a season of discipline and dryness and blahness or whatever. We find ourselves uh, moving back to Jerusalem, a season of renewal. Maybe you, you're, you've been stuck in sin and you go, can I really start over? And I want to remind you, once again, you can't move from this Babylon back to Jerusalem. There can be this, this hope of starting again and renewing your commitment to the Lord and worship. That's where we're going this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. This verse is going to display the facts, and it's also going to display the faith. The the facts are the historical facts that are going on, but the faithfulness is what God is doing for his people. Look at verse 1 again. As we establish the historical facts, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, The Babylonians were the one who conquered Judah and brought many of the Israelites to exile in Babylon. Now the Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. And the first year 
of Cyrus, king of Persia, is actually the first year of the reign of the Persians. This is significant. The Persians are going to create a policy that the conquered and displaced people could return to their land and their religions and rebuild their temples. And it was a good policy to keep the people uh, uh, appeased, and the Jews were also given this opportunity to participate in this return. These are the historical documented facts written down in history, and you can observe them happening in history. These are the facts. But behind these facts, God, we are told, is moving in and through history to accomplish his purposes. We are told from the word of God that God is the one that actually raised Cyrus up into the position that he's in in order to benefit his people. We are told from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Consider Isaiah 45, 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level talking about Cyrus, he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. The word is telling us that God put Cyrus in place as an instrument in God's hand to work for the benefit of his people, to bring them from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Verse 1 says that this was prophesied. Look at it again. That the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So when the exiles were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeremiah encouraged them to live as invested sojourners, to settle, to grow, and to invest, to settle in the land, to grow spiritually and numerically, and to invest in the people in the land. But Jeremiah also prophesied that the the time of sojourning will be over and they were going to return back to the land after being disciplined for their sin. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. After the discipline for their lack of justice and mercy and their idolatry, once the 70 years were completed, they were going to return. One generation heard the prophecy, the next generation experienced it in the return and the fulfillment. And the Lord initiates this fulfillment once again by stirring up King Cyrus. You see, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. We will see the historical facts, but the faith behind the facts is that the Lord is behind all the politics. And for those of you freaking out in our day and time, you need to know that things have not changed. God is still behind all the politics. He is sovereign. And I cannot explain to you everything that is happening now Oftentimes we can see when we look way back, and here we're looking way back, and we are told from the word what is going on. But God is still sovereign. 
And back then, God used an evil king in Babylon to punish his people and to make it hard on them through discipline. Took them into exile, disciplined them from their idolatry, lack of mercy, lack of justice. Seventy years later, God is now using this Persian king. And he's orchestrating the events for the renewal of his people back to the land. God is always working for the benefit of his people. Sometimes it is through seasons of discipline. And sometimes it is through seasons of renewal. And for those of you right now who find yourself in a season of discipline, what you're going through right now is difficult. Perhaps it's because of some specific sin, but you feel that you're in this season of discipline. God is still in control. He is still sovereign. He still loves you. And I would say God loved his people just as much when he was taking them out of the land as he was bringing them back to the land because he is after the hearts of his people. And sometimes his love is expressed in discipline. As a parent disciplines their children, they do not hate their children, they love their children. So God, when he disciplines us, he loves us just as much in the discipline as in the return and the renewal. So back to verse 1, uh, we see that this proclamation, this edict, was verbally proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, including the, the specific Jewish communities, and it was put in writing. Look at the details. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Cyrus is acknowledging the God of the Jews as the Lord, the God of heaven. He is not a true believer. He has been coached up by his advisors on the right lingo. He may have heard about the prophecies about him and concluded that the Lord has given him all the kingdoms of the earth and charged him to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Solomon's great temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, but Cyrus has been stirred up by God to rebuild it. And this is good political language in connection to the Jews. Look at verse 3. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus gives this invitation and this blessing to any one of the Jews who would like to go back to Jerusalem and participating in rebuilding the house of the Lord. Now, his, his motives are skewed. He's trying to appease the people of the land. In fact, there was a, docu- a document found uh, in the 19th century called the Cyrus Cylinder. It reveals the motives of, of Cyrus. It says, May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo, for a long life for me. So his, his views of worship are, are severely tainted. But God is using Cyrus, his messed up motives, to facilitate, facilitate the renewal and the obedience and the worship of his people. God is using this pagan king to bring them from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And sometimes God will go out of his way in circumstances you do not understand in order to facilitate and renew your obedience and your worship. 
There may be circumstances that happen in your life that you do not understand, you cannot explain, but God has used it, sometimes calamity, to stir up your obedience and worship. Unlikely events can jolt you awake. I've talked to some of you before, and you said, you know, before my illness, I wasn't as serious about the Lord. But now that I have become sick and I've passed through the illness, your seriousness about the Lord and his ways, you look at your illness as a good thing. It's amazing. Some of you have gone through boyfriend, girlfriend breakups, and they could be devastating. And yet you find during that time that God is using even that to stir up your emotions for the Lord. God will sometimes use these things that happen in our world that are unexpected, that can even be painful, that we don't understand. But God will provide a way through a variety of means so that you will walk with him, so that you will worship him, so that you will obey him, so that you will see that he is truly your first and only love. Now go back to verse 4. Look at verse 4. We've come to the language of a second exodus. Just as the Israelites didn't leave Egypt empty-handed, so the Jews will not leave Babylon empty-handed. Verse 4. And let each survivor, whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So those who survived the Babylonian attack many years ago, along with the next generations, are allowed to go back, and they're going to be blessed along the way by their pagan neighbors with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, and have a variety of offerings for the house of God. If you remember during the Exodus that the Egyptians poured out blessings on the Israelites as they left the land. The same thing is going on here with the second exodus, that God has given them an opportunity to start again and, and loading them up with blessings as they go to worship. But let's be honest. Life is good in Babylon. The discipline of the Lord has passed. His people have been there for 70 years. They have done a good job being invested sojourners. They have settled. They've been growing. They got their extended family here. And they, they're still a distinct people. They've not blended in with the others. It, life is good in Babylon. Why would you ever want to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem, which is a mess and in ruins? What's going to motivate the people to say, you know, we haven't been there in 70 years. It's a piece of junk, but we're, we're going back. What's going to motivate them to want to go? This is why I think the most significant verse uh, in Ezra, one of the most significant verses, is verse 5. If you want to underline something in Ezra, here's your chance. Underline verse 5. Look at verse 5. Then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priest and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. It is a supernatural stirring up. As God supernaturally stirred up Cyrus, so he's supernaturally stirring up some of his people to return to Jerusalem to worship. And it has to be supernatural. Because no one would really have a desire to go back to Jerusalem. I'm just going to lay it out to you. Okay, Jerusalem is about 1,000 miles away. It is a three to five month journey. Once they get there, there's no staying in a hotel or Airbnb because their city is in ruins. 
And those who are in the land are probably hostile. In addition, it's been like a, one or two generations have passed. They don't remember the glory days. Most of them don't. And things were going pretty good in Babylon. So why in the world would they return? And we are told that the Lord stirred them up to go from Babylon to Jerusalem. And, and I still believe that God still does this today where he stirs his people up and he moves them to sometimes move away from this comfortable life that they're living in Babylon and he stirs them up to change and to worship. And I know that God has been stirring some of you up to do the, do the hard work, and I know it's hard work, uh, of walking in purity. It's hard work. And he's stirring you up to live a life of holiness and walk in purity. And some of you, he's have been drifting from Christ and he's stirring you up. He brought you here this morning to kind of wake you up so that you'll move to him. And a couple of weeks from now, we're, we're going to uh, have, have baptisms because God is stirring some people up to respond to his word. If that's you, respond. He's stirring you up to obey and to be baptized. God is, is still stirring people up today to take risks and, and to share the gospel locally and globally. God is stirring his people up. We heard from two on the stage today. God is stirring them up to go and to serve. And once again, God is stirring up our church. God is, is stirring up our church to care about those who don't know Christ. And one of the ways that we participate in that is through church planning. For those of you who are new at our church, we, we like to plant churches near uh, college and university so we can have a, a community church mixed with, with college students. We planted a church uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, n- near a couple of three colleges, and we planted our second one in Rogers Park near Loyola, and a third one is in Gainesville next to the University of Florida. And we, we feel the God is stirring us up once again for uh, our fourth church plant. And here we are back in Chicago. And, and in four weeks, we're going to have this, this reveal of where this next, by God's grace, this next church plant will be and what university uh, it will be by. But we are praying that God will stir some of you up to go. God stirred up people to go to Minnesota. God stirred up people to go to Rogers Park. God stirred up people to go to Florida. And we believe that some of you are going to be stirred up by his grace to go with our our next church plan. Because God is continually stirring up his people today to obey him and to worship him. Now let's finish up this passage. Before they set out, once again, they're loaded up with all these blessings. But keep in mind, they also get the vessels of the temple for worship. Verse 6. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king, who brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Methodath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up here we go, from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So not only did God 
carry back, you know, they carried back all these gifts their neighbors gave them, but they brought back the vessels from the original temple. These are the vessels, the basins, the censers, and the bowls that were carted off by the Babylonians and placed among the gods of their pagan temples, the, the trophies of their conquered gods. So not only is God now allowing his people to go back, loaded up with all the goods from their neighbors, but they get to take back the original objects that they used in their temple, take those back to participate once again in their worship. So he, he's not only calling for them to go back and worship, but he is making provision for their worship and obedience. And God will always make provision for your obedience. Always. He will always make provision for your obedience and your worship. He will always provide a way for you to obey. There will never be a situation or a circumstance that you will be in where you will say, I have to sin because God is not providing a way out of the sin. No circumstance, no situation. God will always provide for your worship and obedience. He will always make a way out of sin so that you can turn away from it. He has given you his word. He's placed you in a church. He's filled you with the Holy Spirit who will convict you and guide you so that you can worship him and obey. So if you're sitting over here stuck in Babylon, you're kind of in your sin, you say, there is no way I can ever, ever leave this sin. God is providing a way for sure for you to say no and return to return to Jerusalem, to return to renewal. And and I'm, I'm telling you, I know that sin may feel like it has you in its grips, but there is provision and there is a way and an avenue for you to turn around and leave it. God has given you people to encourage you. He's given you his word. He's filled you with the spirit. And I know it may be difficult to think about leaving what you have here in your sin or leaving your comforts, but God will make provision. He'll make provision. It may seem impossible right now. And and if you've been in some pretty deep sin like I have, you may think there ain't no way I'm ever going to leave this sin. And I'm telling you from experience, my testimony, when I thought there is no way I'm leaving this, God makes provision. He makes a way for your renewal. He makes a way for you to start again. You really can start again. For all the parents out there, feel like you've blown it, you say, I have totally messed up my kids, which is probably true, right? There is a way for grace and forgiveness to start again of you humbling yourself. For those of you who are at it in your marriage, you say there is no way for this to be fixed. By God's grace, this can be fixed. Wherever you're at, whatever you're going through, there is a way that God has provided for not only his people to return thousands of years ago, but for you to return and walk with him. You know what's really cool? We are people of the third exodus. We have the first exodus, right, where Moses led his people out of Egypt. And we we saw the second exodus here of Cyrus leading, making a way for the people to leave and return to the land. But we are people of the third exodus, where we were in bondage to our sin and Jesus Christ has led us to freedom. Through his life and death and resurrection, we can find freedom from our sin and bondage as he took on God's wrath for us and our place was buried, rose again, and through faith in him, we can find exodus from our sin and we can follow him. 
And of course, on this earth, we're still going to struggle and things are not going to be perfect, but we can keep going back to Christ as we are people of the third exodus. Keep that in mind. If you think there is no way for you to start again, look to Christ. There is freedom. There is freedom in Christ. There is this way to start again, to be renewed, to start over. And we're a community that's here together, a community of the third exodus, a community that looks for freedom in Christ and wants to encourage one another to seek freedom in Christ. And you may be wondering, well, how do I get moving? How do I get some traction? How do I get out of this? Well, it's just, it's just a simple start where you, what we talk about repentance. Repentance is not, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm going to hang out here in Babylon, but I'm sorry for my sin. God, I'm sorry for my sin. That's, that's, that, that's not what we're talking about. Repentance is, this is wicked and evil. I'm turning around. And you start going that way. That's repentance. Repentance isn't just, I feel bad for my sin. I'm going to go to support group and tell everybody how bad I feel for my sin. I'm going to call my accountability partner and say, I feel bad for my sin. No, no, no. Repentance is, I don't want to live this way anymore. I want grace and forgiveness to start again. I'm going this way. And it's not perfect. I understand there's still struggles and there's still tension. But it starts with repentance. Say, I'm done with it. I want forgiveness. I want grace. And in a moment here, we're going we're gonna to sing this song called, Come Ye Sinners. It's like Jesus saying, come on, come to me, sinners. I'm one. I'm going to you, Jesus. Come ye sinners. Come on, come on. All of you who are, are downtrodden and are suffering, come on, come to me and find grace and forgiveness. His arms are open wide. There is forgiveness in Christ. There's the ability to start again as we find ourselves caught up in Jesus as we are people of his exodus from sin into the newness of life. Let's pray. Father, I am sure that your people many years ago never thought that once they were exiled to Babylon that there would ever be a return. And I know there are people in here who think they have blown it so bad and there's never going to be a return, and they have no hope. May you give them the hope that there can be forgiveness for the way they have sinned and offended you and hurt others, that they can find forgiveness and start again, that they don't have to stay in the state of Babylon and compromise. They don't have to stay there. They can find forgiveness in you to start again. And Lord, I just ask this morning that you will take our repentant hearts and forgive us in Christ and and renew us and fuel us for worship. And where we continue to fall short, may we just continue to look to you and come to you for mercy and grace. And we'll find it in you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.